The belief that God became man and dwells among us in Jesus Christ is at the very heart of Orthodox Christian life and worship. Orthodox worship, therefore, involves the whole person, heart, mind, body, and soul. In our services of worship, Christians pray and sing in liturgies that are not of this world. Ancient Faith Radio now presents Singing the Triumphal Hymn with Father John Finley, exploring the Orthodox faith through music and liturgy. Father John is a composer and musician and is with the Missions and Evangelism Department of the Antiochian Orthodox Church. Here's Father John. In our continuing discussion of the Divine Liturgy, we come to the subject of church architecture. And in these next two lessons, we want to try to accomplish uh, these two objectives. First, an understanding of the Christian temple as a manifestation of heaven on earth. Secondly, to gain an understanding of the significance of church architecture, fixtures, icons, etc. We might begin by asking the question, what does the word church mean? The word church can mean either the body or the place. That is, either the Christian community or the house where it worships God. Some may argue that the only proper use of the word church is in reference to the body of Christ or the Christian community. St. Stephen, in his defense before the Jewish council, argued that the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by human hands, by quoting the prophet Isaiah, who said, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? St. Paul also says in his letter to the Ephesians, um, Ephesians chapter 2, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom you also are being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. In his second letter to the Corinthians, uh, St. Paul also says, and this is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. St. Peter instructs us along the same lines in his uh, second letter, Second Peter chapter 2. Coming to him as to a living stone, Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, 
a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. These passages from Scripture are sometimes used by Protestants and evangelicals to rebut the idea of the church as a building or perhaps as a defense against spending too much time or money on the building itself to make it beautiful. Consequently, many Protestant churches are built in a very plain and simple fashion, unornate and functional only as a place together. I'm not trying to beat up on <laughs> on Protestants and evangelicals and uh, look at some of these Anglican churches in England and some Protestant churches in America. They're unbelievable. They're amazing. But I'm sure that you can also think in your mind of many, especially evangelical churches, you know, like you know, Baptist churches in, in the South and stuff, stuff like that. I mean, this is what I grew up with. And these are often very simple, plain, unornate, functional, only as a place together. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Such reasoning, though, betrays an attitude of dichotomy between spiritual and physical, placing value only in the spiritual, that is, that which is not seen. Traditional church architecture, however, is designed precisely to manifest and reveal the biblical truths of the passages quoted above. This type of architecture manifests to the people of God that God is with us, that God dwells in our midst, and that we can experience heaven on earth. Church architecture helps us to understand who we are and where we are in worship. We are the people of God, and we worship Him in spirit and in truth in His heavenly sanctuary. In other words, the outer temple, the church building, reveals and manifests the true dimensions of the living temple, the body of Christ, the church. The central idea common to all Orthodox churches is that of the temple as heaven on earth, the place where, through our participation in the liturgy of the church, we enter into the communion with the age to come, the kingdom of God. The narthex, or the entrance, introduces or initiates one into the church. Technically, it would uh, we would expect it to have a baptismal font in its center, since anciently baptisms were performed in or near the narthex, though baptisms have not been so performed in uh, recent centuries. The nave or the main part of the temple, is seen as the place of acceptance into the kingdom of God. Even the word nave comes from the Latin novice, you know, navy, the boat. We're in the ark, we're in the boat, heading for the kingdom of God. 
The sanctuary is the place of the altar. It is the mystical center of the church. The altar manifests to us the throne of God, the banquet table, the tomb of Christ, and the altar of Christ's sacrifice for us. Perhaps one of the most striking features of Orthodox Christian architecture is that of icons. What are icons, anyway? They're certainly more than mere decorations or religious art. Father Alexander Schmemann says they have a sacred and liturgical function. They manifest our communion, our real unity with heaven, the spiritual and glorified dimension of the church. Therefore, icons are more than images According to the teaching of the Orthodox Church, they make truly present those whom they represent. They are a spiritual reality and not a mere symbol. Iconography is a sacramental art in which the visible reveals the invisible. This art has its rules or canon which is a special method and a technique of painting which has been elaborated through many centuries to express the transfigured reality. St. John of Damascus, who wrote heavily against the iconoclasts, and that, that means the icon breakers or the icon destroyers, he lived in the uh, 8th century. He summarizes the teaching of the fathers of the church up to his day on the subject of icons. Well, this is a long quote, but I'll tell you, it is power-packed. And I hope you'll hang with me here while I read through this entire section because it is very edifying to hear from St. John of Damascus on this subject. Since there are certain people who find great fault with us for adoring and honoring both the image of the Savior and that of Our Lady, as well as those of the rest of the saints and servants of Christ, let them hear how from the beginning God made man to his own image. For what reason, then, do we adore one another except because we've been made to the image of God. As the inspired Basil, who is deeply learned in theology, says, the honor paid to the image redounds to the original. And the original is the thing imaged from which the copy is made. For what reason did the people of Moses adore from round about the tabernacle which bore an image and pattern of heavenly things or rather of all creation indeed god had said to moses see that thou make all things according to the pattern which was shown thee on the mount and the cherubim too that overshadowed the propitiatory were they not the handiwork of men 
And what was the celebrated temple in Jerusalem? Was it not built and furnished by human hands and skill? Now, sacred scripture condemns those who adore graven things and also those who sacrifice to the demons. The Greeks used to sacrifice and the Jews also used to sacrifice. But the Greeks sacrificed to the demons, whereas the Jews sacrificed to God. And the sacrifice of the Greeks was rejected and condemned while the sacrifice of the just was acceptable to God. Thus, Noah sacrificed, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor of the good intention and accepted the fragrance of the gift offered to him. And thus the statutes of the Greeks happened to be rejected and condemned because they were representations of demons. But furthermore, who can make a copy of the invisible, incorporeal, uncircumscribed, and unportrayable God? It is then highly insane and impious to give a form to the Godhead. For this reason, it was not the practice of the Old Testament to use images. However, through the bowels of his mercy, God, for our salvation, was made man in truth, not in the appearance of man, as he was seen by Abraham or the prophets, but really made man in substance. Then he abode on earth, conversed with men, worked miracles, suffered, was crucified, rose again, and was taken up. And all these things really happened and were seen by men and indeed written down to remind and instruct us who were not present then so that although we have not seen, yet hearing and believing we may attain to the blessedness of the Lord. Since, however, not all know letters or do all have leisure to read, the fathers deemed it fit that these events should be depicted as a sort of memorial and terse reminder. It certainly happens frequently that at times when we do not have the Lord's passion in mind, we may see the image of his crucifixion, and being thus reminded of his saving passion, fall down and adore but it is not the material which we adore, but that which is represented. Just as we do not adore the material of the gospel or that of the cross, but that which they typify. For what is the difference between a cross which does not typify the Lord and one which does? It is the same way with the mother of God, too. For the honor paid her is referred to him who was incarnate of her. And similarly, also, we're stirred up by the exploits of the holy men to manliness, zeal, imitation of their virtues, and the glory of God. For as we have said, the honor shown the more sensible of one's fellow servants gives proof of one's love for the common master. 
and the honor paid to the image redounds to the original. This is the written tradition, just as is worshiping towards the east, adoring the cross, and many other similar things. Wow, what an amazing account that uh, St. John of Damascus gives us. These icons, together with the whole church, make visible for us, reveal, and participate in the invisible heavenly reality described in Hebrews chapters 9 through 12 of Christ who has entered through the more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, having come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the new Jerusalem, inhabited by God, the angels, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The church, together with its sections, domes, fixtures, icons, manifests heaven in this world. And when we gather as the faithful in the church to worship God, the reality of who we are and where we are is brought home to us in a deeper way. It's also worthy of note that Orthodox temples are constructed in such a way that the faithful face towards east in the worship. St. John of Damascus explains why. And again, this is kind of a long quote, but very interesting. It is not without any reason or by chance that we worship towards the east. On the contrary, since we are composed of a visible and an invisible nature, of an intellectual nature and a sensitive one, that is, we also offer a twofold worship to the Creator. It is just as we also sing, both with our mind and with our bodily lips, and as we are baptized both in water and in the Spirit, and as we are united to the Lord in two ways when we receive the sacrament and the grace of the Spirit. And so, since God is spiritual light, and Christ in sacred scripture is called the Son of Justice and the Orient, the East should be dedicated to his worship. For everything beautiful should be dedicated to God from whom everything that is good receives its goodness. Also, the divine David says, Sing to God, ye kingdoms of the earth. Sing ye to the Lord who mounteth above the heaven of heavens and to the east. And still again, Scripture says, And the Lord had planted a paradise in Eden to the east, wherein he placed man whom he had formed, and whom he cast out when he had transgressed and made him to live over against the paradise of pleasure, or in the west. Thus, it is that when we worship God, we long for our ancient fatherland and gaze toward it. The tabernacle of Moses had the veil and the propitiatory to the east, 
and the tribe of Judah, as being the more honorable, pitched their tents on the east and in the celebrated temple of Solomon, the gate of the Lord was set to the east. As a matter of fact, when the Lord was crucified, he looked towards the west. So we worship gazing towards him. And when he was taken up, he ascended to the east, and thus the apostles worshipped him, and thus he shall come in the same way as they had seen him going into heaven, as the Lord himself said, as lightning cometh out of the east, and also appeareth even into the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And so while we're awaiting him, we worship towards the east, that is, Moreover, the unwritten tradition of the apostles, for they have handed many things down to us unwritten. Again, St. John Damascus' insight is uh, so amazing, so incredible, so inspiring. And when I think about offering a twofold worship, I'm convicted of my own sins. You know, how often do, do we think of God? We think these thoughts, we offer these adorations from our heart, but in our life, in our body, are we honoring God in every way? And when we come into the church, you know, we might think initially, what's all of this crossing and bowing and smelling incense and lighting candles and all of this stuff? I'll tell you what all of this stuff is. It's worshiping God with my body. We need to worship God with our soul. We need to worship God with our body. You remember King David in the psalm. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. He was talking to his soul. He was telling his soul what it ought to do. And we can also talk to our bodies and tell our bodies how they ought to act and how they ought to honor and reverence the Lord as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that was Father John Finley with Singing the Triumphal Hymn, Exploring the Orthodox Faith Through Music and Liturgy. If you would like to write Father John, his email is singing at ancientfaith.com. That's singing at ancientfaith.com. This is a listener-supported presentation of Ancient Faith Radio. For